Take a Bible this morning and find Exodus 13. There is an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along with some of the main ideas that we're going to walk through this morning. Exodus 13. This is one of the shortest passages that we're going to look at in our study through the uh, uh oh through the book of Exodus and. Uh, just a superficial reading of these verses kind of sounds like it's filler material, almost. And what I mean by that is there's so much action before it with the plagues culminating in the Passover, and there's so much action coming right after it with the crossing of the Red Sea and the parting of the sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. It almost sounds like this is a catch-your-breath verse, like, okay... The people are gone, and let me fill you in on a few things. Catch your breath before we get ready for some more action. But really, there's more going on here than just sort of plot development or advancing the story. In this short passage, we learn some important truths, or we should say we're reminded of some important truths about how God relates to his people. And they're truths that applied to Moses and the people thousands of years ago, and they apply equally to us today in Odessa, Texas. So just a little bit of geography and history before we start, and uh, then we'll read the passage and we'll really jump in. There was a road, it's called the Via Maris. It was a direct road out of Egypt, and it ran north up the Mediterranean coastline. And I'll just put a map up and show you this black line. There's Egypt over on the left where the Nile sort of splits out into the Nile Delta. And this road, you just trace it all the way up the coast, uh, sometimes it's called the Via Maris, or sometimes it's called the Way of the Canaanites, and it just leads all the way up. And I'm showing you this road because it's going to make sense in a minute what we read about. If you were in Egypt and you needed to move a bunch of people or a bunch of animals or a bunch of anything into Canaan, this is the way to do it. This is the direct road. This is like me saying to you, hey, we need to get from here to uh, Dallas. What's the best way? Well, just get on the interstate. And go. You don't have to worry about the back roads and the wrong turns and getting lost and the speed traps and all that stuff. You just get on the highway and go. And so this was called the, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it took people straight from Egypt up uh, into what we would call the promised land. This is not the road Israel took. It's not the way that they went. The problem for Israel is once you get out of Egypt proper and you're traveling down this road, the Egyptians had outposts and garrisons and soldiers posted all along this road because they were constantly being attacked, constantly being invaded. And so they wanted a little bit of a buffer, and so they just sort of put these outposts right down this road, which means if you're Hebrew and you're leaving Egypt, every few miles down the road you're going to face an outpost. You're going to have another fight. And eventually once you get past all the Egyptian outposts, you're going to get to Philistine territory, and then you're going to have another fight, and we're going to talk about some of that here in just a little bit. So this is the Via Maris. It's not the way they went out. And scholars debate which way they actually went out. There's just not a lot of consensus on how did they actually get from point A to point B. I'll just show you the three leading candidates. Most of you don't care about this at all. But if you're nerdy like me, you're kind of interested in it. So option one, we'll call it the green route up at the top. You see it there? It's in the northern route. And if you take this route as the route of the Exodus, then you say the crossing of the sea, 
the Red Sea, or some people would translate it the Reed Sea, actually happened north up closer to the Mediterranean, and then Mount Sinai was north up in the Sinai Peninsula. This is probably not the most popular opinion, but some people think they went this way. The most popular opinion is we'll call the Red Road, which is down to the south, and this means that the crossing of the sea, which we'll read about in the coming weeks, was actually the Gulf of Suez. And so there's the Red Sea. You can get on Google Earth later and check this all out. And it splits up into the Gulf of Aqaba and the Gulf of Suez. They crossed at the Gulf of Suez. Pharaoh's army was drowned. And then they went all the way down to the bottom of this triangle that we call the Sinai Peninsula. And this is the majority view that Mount Sinai was down in the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. The view I think is most likely is the Purple Road, which is kind of through the middle. And there's a a series of lakes uh, up above what we know as the Gulf of Suez. And I think that this uh, water crossing through the sea happened up there. And then they traveled through the Sinai Peninsula and down into Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. Now, let me just be real honest with you. Nobody knows. Okay? No one knows. We can make educated guesses. We can go back and look at archaeology. We can try to piece things together. But as you read through the book of Exodus and you read they stopped here and they stopped there and they stopped there, you realize they didn't call here and there and all these places the same thing we call them today. And you realize that wars have been fought in this part of the world for centuries. And the conquering armies that burned these cities to the ground, they didn't say, hey, let's put a sign up so people can remember the name of this city in Odessa 3,000 years later and figure out which way the Israelites left Egypt. They didn't do that. And we're not even certain. In fact, we have pretty good reason to believe that uh, the Red Sea and the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, that the shorelines weren't even the same 3,000 years ago as they are today. So the truth is, we just really don't know. And sometimes it's okay to just admit we don't really know how they got from point A out to point B. I just want to warn you about something. Some of you are, you know, You ask a lot of questions, and that's a good thing. I like that. You're inquisitive, and you want to know. The problem is some of you think Google is a good research tool. And so you're going to go home, and you're going to click, how did they get out of Egypt and into Canaan? Google knows. My pastor doesn't know, but Google's going to tell me. And you're going to get on. And here's what I'm going to just tell you. Whatever it is you're looking for, you're going to find it. You understand that on the Internet? Whatever you're looking for, you're going to find it. People make money when you click on their links. And so they post things that they think you want to read about. Stories that you might be interested in. Theories that might be of interest to you. Even if they're not true at all. Even if they have no basis in reality. Or even if the headline of the article has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the article. They want you to click. They want you to click. Because that means money for them. So I'm just telling you. If you're looking on the internet and you're looking for theories about some of this stuff, whatever you're looking for, you'll find it. And just take it with a grain of salt and realize the truth is we just don't know exactly how they got from point A to point B out of Egypt into the promised land. But we know that they made it and it's certainly not the big point or the main idea of the passage, which is this. The Lord saved his people from Egypt so they would know him. We have talked about this idea already in the book of Exodus. We're going to talk about it again as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus. It's a theme throughout the book that God wants his people to know him. And by know, I don't mean know about. 
I don't mean be able to rattle off facts about. I don't mean be aware of. I mean know in the biblical sense of having an intimate relationship with his people. He wants his people to know who he is in all his glory and all his majesty and all his fullness. And he's saving these people and he's leading them every step along the way intentionally and purposefully so that they would know him. So let's read the passage and then we'll jump in and try to make sense of it. Exodus 13, beginning in verse 17, the word of God says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we look back and we remember you saving a people out of Egypt, a people to be your possession, your inheritance, people that you refer to as your firstborn. Father, we see your power and your mighty acts of salvation and your mighty acts of judgment in this story. And Father, we tremble in your presence we tremble to think about who you are and all your, all your infinite holiness. And Father, as we look at this short passage this morning, we just ask for wisdom to understand better how you desire to relate to your people and what you want us to know about you, how you want us to respond to you. Father, these are simple truths, but they're truths that we need driven into our hearts over and over and over again. So we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to show you up on the screen, uh, I guess you could call the 100 Million Club. This is a list of social media companies that have over 100 million active users. And you can see some of the names up there. Some you recognize, some you don't. Some are uh, very popular in the United States. Some are more popular overseas. Up at the top is Facebook, which boasts 2 billion active users. And it's amazing that none of these companies existed 20 years ago. None of them. I don't want to pretend like social media is always a good thing. We could spend Sundays and Sundays and Sundays talking about the ills of social media. But it is an interesting thing that so many people on the earth are attracted to it and obsessed with it and drawn to it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people Billions of people finding connection through social media. 
if you hold a biblical worldview, that really shouldn't surprise you. If you understand that in the beginning God created human beings in his image, it shouldn't surprise you that human beings want to have relationships and connections with other people. Because the Bible says that in the beginning, from the beginning, from before the beginning, God has always existed in this relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a relationship within the Godhead. To be created in his image means, at least in part, that we are created to experience relationship. The Bible says that in the beginning, God made people to have a relationship with him. Sin has broken that relationship, but our original purpose was to have a relationship and a connection with God. It's built into who we are as people to connect and to relate. Now, that doesn't give you or me license to live our lives on social media. What it does mean is social media is a reminder. This is built into us as human beings, this desire for connection, this desire for a relationship. And the whole story of the Bible is the story of What did God do once that relationship was broken by sin to repair it? Thank goodness he didn't just set up a social media website. He sent his son who lived a life of obedience, died on a cross for our punishment, rose again from the grave, and sent his people out to all the nations, commanding them to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that people could be reconciled to God. That's the fullness of the biblical story. And in seed form, you see some of the initial truths that undergird that way, way back in the book of Exodus. And so we're going to talk this morning about three truths about how God relates to his people. All of them you can see fulfilled in Jesus, but all of them you see here in the book of Exodus. So number one, you've got to understand this. God always knows what is best for his people. He always knows what is best for his people. Look at Exodus 13 again, and let's just read the first two verses we looked at, verse 17 and 18. Scripture says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And I hope you see the irony in those two verses. The text says, they walk out equipped for battle. I'm reading out of the ESV. Some other English translations say they were marching in formation. But there's a military feel to that phrase. Like this is an army. It's the Lord's army walking out. But they're not ready to fight. They're marching in formation. They have the weapons. They look the part. But they're not ready for it. And God says, if I march these people out this way, they're just going to want to turn back and return to Egypt. And when I read that and I think about it, my mind just starts rattling off questions. It's just a strange little dynamic. They're, They're equipped to fight, but they're not actually ready to fight. And so God doesn't lead them into a fight because he doesn't want them to want to turn back. And I just start asking myself, these people haven't fought yet. They didn't fight Egypt. Why couldn't it have been that God got them out of Egypt, put them on the Via Maris, marched them on the straight road to the promised land, and if the Philistines were a problem along the way, I think God could have handled it, right? 
Like he handled Egypt pretty easily. It was 10 to nothing when the people walk out. And there's going to be icing on top of that cake next week when we see Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. God could have handled the Philistines just like he handled the Egyptians. Why not just march them straight into battle and say, hey, I'm going to fight for you just like I've been fighting for you. And why be so concerned here that the people might turn back? Because we know later they're going to get out in the desert. They're not going to have anything to eat. They're not going to have anything to drink. And what are they going to say? Let's go back. They're already going to talk about wanting to go back. And my mind just starts running and I think, why didn't, why didn't you just fight for them, God? You've already done it. You're going to do it again. At the Red Sea, you're going to do it when Joshua leads the people into the promised land. You're going to fight for them. Why not just fight for them here? It could have saved a lot of heartache. You could have just saved the whole 40 years in the desert thing. Possibly you could have saved some of the the chaos in the book of Judges stuff. Why not just fight for them? And the answer to that question is, that wasn't best. That wasn't the plan. And I can't point you to a specific verse that just makes it real clear and neat and tidy that says this is why it didn't need to happen that time. But the text is reminding us God knows what's best for his people. This wasn't best. So he didn't lead them this way. He led them a different way. I know as I look at your faces, you know the right answer here. You know the connection that's supposed to be going on in your brain and your heart is God knows what's best for me and for my life. I just wonder how often we rest in that. When our circumstances or our situation are not what we would have them to be, is that our default? To preach to ourselves and to talk to ourselves and to say, God, you know what's best. Or are you guys a lot like me where we tend to sit back and say, God, I need to brief you on a few things here. Let me bring you up to speed on what's going on. I'm not sure you really have all the the I's dotted and the T's crossed. God, let let me tell you about what's happening and how I feel about it and tell you why it needs to be playing out differently. God knows what's best for his people. And I cannot look at Exodus 13 and tell you, This is the actual reason why this was better than my plan, by my thoughts. God just wiping the Philistines out right out of the gate. God just taking these Egyptian outposts out as they walked down the Via Maris. But that wasn't the best plan. God had his reasons. God doesn't owe me or you all of his reasons. But he always knows what's best. And sometimes we just need to hit the pause button in our minds and our hearts and we just need to remind ourselves who God is because sometimes we just forget that. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves that God is wise and he is powerful and he is good, just for starters. Because sometimes we forget these things. When we're in a situation where we feel like God should be doing it differently, these are some of the things that we forget. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm small and my brain is tiny and there's a million things I don't understand, but God is wise. And I am weak and I am impotent and powerless left to myself, but God is powerful. And my heart is twisted and wicked and perverse and selfish, but God is good all of the time. And sometimes you and I just need to stop and remind ourselves 
that these things are true. Look at these verses from the book of Psalms. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. My understanding is very small. God's cannot be measured. That means when I bump up against a situation in life that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, default for me and for you needs to be, God, I need to trust you in this. I don't understand it. Why would I be able to understand it? I'm not the creator. I'm the creature. God is the one whose understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And he doesn't need my permission or your permission or Moses' permission or Pharaoh's permission. He does what he wants to do. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a million times in your life, in my life, where we're going to be tempted to wonder whether or not, is, whether or not God is really doing the good thing, the best thing. And sometimes you and I just need to hit the pause button and remind ourselves who God is. He is wise. He is powerful. He is good. And he knows what's best for his people. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second is this. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his people. Look at Exodus 13. And let's read verse 20 and 22. 20, 21, and 22. It says, They moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Again, we don't know exactly what this looked like. These are a few artist renditions of what it might have looked like for this pillar of fire to go with the people. And most of the artists like to draw the fire more than the cloud. Fire is a little more exciting, so you see more pictures of that. My mind just kicks into gear again, and maybe you think you just need to kick your mind out of gear and quit asking these dumb questions. But this week I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, okay, ten plagues, all the Passover stuff, then the people leave. And then the fiery pillar shows up. And if I'm Moses, which I'm not, I might be thinking, hey, we could have used that pillar the last couple of weeks. Like when I was going into Pharaoh, you could have had the pillar hovering over my head. How cool would that have been? March into Pharaoh with fire shooting out of the top of my head. That'll make a man listen to you. You know what I mean? Why didn't you do it that way? Why didn't the pillar show up? back when all this other stuff was going on. How about the night of the Passover? With all the uncertainty settling over the people of Israel, Moses says death is going to pass through for everyone. And the only way out is to sacrifice this lamb. And you've seen the worst things happen to Egypt. And now you think about your own firstborn and you think, Death could be coming from my house if we don't do this exactly right or if we mess it up. or It's kind of a scary, frightening thing. It would have been nice. It would have been comforting to have something visual to look at. Why didn't God send it sooner? Well, we could just back up to the previous point and say God knows what's best. We can also sort of piece together the book of Exodus with what we know about the cross of Jesus 
and understand that there was an order to everything that was happening here. Listen, the events of the Exodus were a picture of what God was going to ultimately do through Jesus many, many, many years later through the Messiah. Think about the Exodus for a minute. The whole thing begins at the, the beginning of the story with the Lord, Yahweh, appearing to Moses and saying, this is what I'm about to do. I have a plan and I have a purpose and this is who it involves and this is how it's all going to play out. Watch. I'm about to save you. It begins to play out, but nobody gets set, set free. Nobody walks out until the night of the Passover, until after the night of the Passover, when the Passover lambs were killed and the blood was smeared on the doorway. So God begins it all. He says, I've got a plan. This is what we're going to do. There's a lamb that's slaughtered so that the people can go free. And then, and only then, does the presence of God come to be with the people of God. This pillar of cloud and fire shows up and it stays with them. For decades, he doesn't leave them. You can look at that and you don't have to be a biblical scholar to piece it together and say, hey, that's kind of like what happened at the cross. God shows up at the beginning of the Gospels and he starts sending messages to people like Mary and Joseph saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm about to save you. So since I'm going to save you, there's going to be a baby, you should name him Jesus, since that means Yahweh saves. Let's name him Jesus. No one is actually saved until the lamb dies and his blood is shed for our sins, for our forgiveness. And then and only then does the Spirit of God come to be with the people of God. It's the exact same pattern you see playing out in the book of Exodus that you see played out later in the Bible. And so just a couple of thoughts here. Fire is often associated with theophanies in the Bible. A theophany is a, a visible manifestation of God's presence. God appears to people. And many times in the Bible, he does that in the form of fire. You can look these up later. Genesis 15 is Abraham who gets put to sleep and there's this smoking pot and this fire that passes through the midst of the covenant ceremony. Exodus 3 is God appearing to Moses at the burning bush, the bush that was on fire. Exodus 19, the people get to Mount Sinai and they look up and there's flames of fire shooting out from the mountain. Acts 1.9, the Spirit comes. And what is the actual form? Tongues of fire. The book of Revelation, John sees his former best friend Jesus in a glorified state and he says his eyes were like flaming fire. It's the presence of God. All the way through, you see this theme repeated over and over and over and over again. And the people can look up and they can see this flaming whatever it was. And they can say, God is with us. He had a plan. The lambs were sacrificed. And now God is with us. And he's not going to leave us. Today, we experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And I'll put John 14 on the screen and we'll read it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. This is the presence of God in our lives. Don't miss the beauty of this. Jesus doesn't just save you so you can be forgiven and God can sort of give you some thumbs up and you get to go to heaven when you die. 
Jesus comes and he gives his life as the sinless substitutionary sacrifice, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that God can be with us now and that we can enjoy the presence of God now and forever. So God wants to be with his people. Number two, last idea is this. God wants his people to have faith. He wants his people to have faith. I think Exodus 13, 19 is my favorite, book, uh, favorite verse in the book of Exodus. I'm reserving the right to change my mind as we go through the series. But up to this point, I think this is my favorite verse. Look at it in your Bible if you've still got it open. Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's a beautiful verse. That's a beautiful, beautiful verse. It goes all the way back to the end of Genesis, and I'll put it on the screen. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then the book of Genesis ends saying they embalmed Joseph and they put him in a coffin. They didn't put him in the ground, but they embalm him and they put him in a box and they wait. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And in the end, 400 years go by. 400 years is a, a big span of time. It's hard for Americans to even think about 400 years when our country hasn't been around that long. Four centuries go by. And when they get ready to walk out of the land, somebody says, don't forget the box. The old box of bones. Because it's coming with us. And the book of Hebrews explains the whole thing to us beautifully. Hebrews says this, By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. The whole thing was a result, was a consequence of his faith. He made mention of the exodus, meaning he knew God's going to visit you and take you out of here. This is not our home. We're not staying here. He told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you're going to be here 400 years, and I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that afflicts you, and you're coming out with great possessions. And Joseph, all those years after God made that promise to, to great-grandpa Abraham, Joseph says, I believe God's going to do that. I still have faith in that promise. It's an old, old promise, but I believe he's going to do it. And I believe it so much that I want to be a part of what God's going to do. So when you leave, not if, when you leave, you take my bones and you take them with you. Because I want to be part of what God has promised to this people. Listen, that is no different than the kind of faith that God wants from you. Faith is kind of a, a funny word. We use it a lot of different ways in the English language. And we say a lot of things, I believe this or I have faith in this. Listen, this is what God wants from you when I say he wants you to be a person of faith. He wants you to look back at the promises that he's made to his people throughout the years. And he wants you to look back and say, I believe that God will keep those promises. 
He promised Abraham more offspring than the stars in the heavens. And we talked about last week how many walked out. Was it 50,000? Was it a couple of million? Either way, that's not as many as the stars in the heavens. You say, I believe God's going to keep that promise. God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. I believe God's going to keep that promise. You say, God promised that he would be with his people, that he would not leave them. I believe he's going to keep that promise. He wants you to look back and say, this is what the Bible says to me about God. The Bible tells me that he's wise and he's powerful and he's good. That means he always knows what's best and I believe that and I have faith in that. The Bible wants you to look back and say, God has told us that this is not our home. We are strangers and exiles here. It's not where we belong. And the Bible says that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his people. And the Bible wants you to look back and say, I believe that that's going to happen. I believe that God's going to keep his promise. It doesn't mean you don't have doubts from time to time. It doesn't mean you don't struggle from time to time. It doesn't mean that some of these things aren't hard to piece together and, and drive home into your heart. It doesn't mean you don't need to preach to yourself and remind yourself of these things. But this is what God wants from his people. He wants us to be people of faith who look back on the promises that he's made and we say God is going to make good on that promise in the future. And this is not my home. And there is a home awaiting me where all of these promises will be fulfilled and there won't be any untied, loose ends that we're unsure about. God will be faithful to keep his word. I'm going to ask you to bow and I want to pray for you and I want to pray for myself that we would be people of faith. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the story of the Exodus. We're grateful for all that you did to save your people. And we're grateful for the truths that it teaches us about you. And we know that you are the same yesterday, today, forever. That your glory endures yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we pray that these very simple truths from your word would be very real in our lives. Father, just as we go through our day today, as we go through our week this week, as we go through 2018, that these would be truths that we go back to and we plan our feet on and we remind ourselves these things are true. That you have done everything that needed to be done to have a relationship with your people. Father, we have hope because of who you are and because of what you've done for us through Christ. Father, be honored as we just take a moment at the end of our service to sing and reflect and respond to you for who you are and what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one last song.